Welcome to the 10th episode of The Pacemaker. This is your host, Roman Stolarov. In this episode, we'll be talking to Professor Dario Farina, Chair of Neurorehabilitation Engineering at Imperial College London and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Electromyography and Kinesiology. Professor Farina is a leading expert in the field of neural control of movement and human-machine interfacing, having authored publications in many different areas of the space, totaling tens of thousands of citations. As you will hear, the problem of neural-human-machine interfacing is an extremely challenging one, because the neural pathways of the body are generally closed off and difficult to read from or write to in any meaningful way. But by leveraging the underlying anatomy and physiology, scientists have managed to bridge the gap between the artificial and the biological to circumvent some of these challenges. A great example of this is Professor Farina's work on controlling upper limb prostheses, in which he connects many advanced techniques combining the built-in functions of biology with modern advances in sensing and actuation to allow people with amputations to command and potentially even feel robotic limbs. These capabilities, which we will get into during the conversation, would potentially allow people with amputations to control the movements of their artificial limbs in ways that feel much more intuitive and natural. As a final note before the conversation, if you enjoy the episode, please consider liking or following the podcast or leaving a rating if you're using Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And now, let's explore the cutting edge in human-machine interfacing with Professor Dario Farina. So Dario, you are one of the world's experts in human-machine interfacing, um, and specifically in the area of movement. I'd like to ask you about the specifics of your research, but first, can you contextualize the field for me? What, what are the things that we've accomplished in human-machine interfacing and what do we have left to do? What are the biggest challenges? So the, the field of human-machine interfaces is a, a very broad field, and also it has a number of uh, different application areas. Uh, so uh, the achievements depends a bit on uh, uh, which uh, areas we, we are discussing. Um, if we talk about the medical applications, then the human-machine interfacing uh, is... Uh, used uh, to connect uh, patients uh, with external devices, uh, normally with the aim of uh, restoring uh, uh, lost movement capacities. So we can make examples of uh, robotic limbs to substitute uh, uh, biological limbs that may be missing because of uh, uh, traumatic amputations, for example, or um, exoskeletons that are supporting motor function, for example, in uh, individuals uh, with uh, uh, stroke who have uh, uh, impaired motor capacities. So in all these um, uh, technologies, there is uh, often the need of uh, an interface with the patient, meaning uh, a system that can detect the motor intention of the patient and translate it into motor commands to the external devices. So in the medical field, there have been uh, uh, a lot of developments recently. Uh, probably the, historically, uh, the first attempts in uh, human machine interfacing have been um, uh, done for prosthetic limbs. And uh, these date backs uh, of decades. We have systems that are actively controlled by patients since uh, several decades. And uh, uh, more recently, for uh, uh, many other technologies, um, in some uh, uh, in some applications, there have been uh, uh, important progresses. Uh, in some others, uh, 
uh, a bit less. What I can say is that uh, in general, uh, we still have uh, a long way to go. In general, the information transfer rate, meaning the amount of information we can uh, decode from the human body, is rather limited and is not sufficient to uh, reproduce uh, uh, natural movements. So to make an example, uh, to control uh, the human hand, uh, the central nervous system needs uh, to control uh, approximately 25 degrees of freedom. And currently, uh, when we talk about robotic hands, uh, we are able uh, to decode from the central nervous system uh, commands uh, for up to two or three degrees of freedom. So uh, we can see that there is uh, an order of magnitude gap in uh, what uh, would be needed with respect to what we can offer. We also can have a man-machine interfacing when we uh, stimulate the nervous system in a closed loop. For example, we may want to stimulate the brain to induce plasticity, and we may want to close the loop with a human-machine interface to stimulate at the right moments in order to precisely um, uh, neuromodulate the system in the in the way we want. Um, so the the applications are uh, are, are really are really several, uh, and there are new applications uh, actually proposed uh, every day. We can say that uh, the the task uh, of establishing uh, a human machine interface uh, is. Uh, at the core of uh, any motor uh, rehabilitation technology that uh, that we develop. So, so if we dive a little bit more deeply into the example of the uh, artificial robotic limbs, when someone loses uh, a hand, we'll say, with those 25 degrees of freedom, can you describe to me the magnitude of the problem that emerges when thinking about trying to replace that hand? What all do we have to do? to fully replace the function of a human hand? Yeah, well, the challenges are, uh, are really huge from the engineering point of view uh, because uh, the uh, missing uh, of a part of the body implies not only missing, of course, the motor functions associated to that part of the body, which in the case of the end are particularly complex, but also missing um, all the uh, sensory feedback that that part of the body uh, provides to the central nervous system. So if we talk about, uh, if we start uh, with the motor part, the challenges are to uh, replace uh, very complex movements, uh, as we said before, of a very large number of degrees of freedom. And this poses challenges in the robotic design. So we need to design uh, robotic hands that are able to uh, reproduce uh, such uh, uh, complexity from the anatomical and functional point of view. And then uh, uh, at the core, there is also the interface, meaning that we have to extract from uh, biological signals that can be recorded from the brain or from the nerves or from the residual muscles. We have to extract uh, sufficient information to uh, estimate accurately the intention uh, of uh, the patient and to reproduce this in a movement that uh, ideally should be as uh, complex uh, as the original movement by the biological end. So this uh, is, uh, is not possible currently, we're very far from that, 
as I said, uh, we are uh, uh, in extremely uh, poor type of control, uh, but still uh, within this uh, uh, simpler technology with respect to the biological counterpart, uh, we are able to help uh, hundreds of thousands of patients around the world that have uh, robotic hands controlled by mostly uh, mass electrical signals and uh, mostly performing one or two degrees of freedom, which means uh, grasping and wrist rotation. Uh, right, the sort of the biggest degrees of freedom, the, the ones that provide the, the largest the, range of motion and probably the most useful ones. Exactly right. Functionally, the most useful one. So the most useful one functionally is the grasping, which is the one that is provided uh, first. And then the rotation of the wrist uh, uh, help uh, the reaching of objects without uh, too large compensatory movements. Uh, so from the motor part, there is still uh, uh, a lot to do. And uh, currently, the type of signals that we use, as I said, are mainly recorded from the remaining muscles uh, or from the nerves. And uh, these are signals that are very complex to the code. Uh, in a broader perspective, as I said, there is also the issue of the sensory feedback, which is uh, completely deprived once, uh, uh, once the, the limb is missing. Uh, this implies, um, in, uh, in, in many cases, uh, also some clinical problems that are felt as very problematic for the patient, such as uh, phantom sensations uh, or even phantom pain. Uh, which is uh, a painful sensation associated to a limb that is missing and due to a mismatch uh, between the information arriving at the central nervous system and the actual anatomical uh, condition, which is uh, the missing of a limb. Uh, so reproducing the sensory uh, input to the central nervous system is the other side uh, of the engineering challenge with respect to the motor part. In this case, instead of decoding information, we have to encode information. We have to provide information to the nervous system that is um, uh, coherent with uh, the sensation that normally would be felt by the, by the natural limb. And this is also a very complex problem because uh, we have uh, to interface with uh, uh, tens of thousands of nerve fibers, sensory nerve fibers, uh, and try to understand uh, how to provide to the, to the brain the proper input that can be interpreted in the, in the correct way. And, and presumably there's, there's a, a feedback loop there, right? Where, you know, it's not only uh, reading the output and writing the, the input back to the nervous system, but also the output is probably influenced by the input, right? So you have to get one of them barely correct uh, in order to get the physiologically correct uh, outputs from, from the peripheral nervous system. Is that, is that a good kind of description? Definitely. So the, any, uh, any control of, uh, of a part of the body is, uh, is a sensory motor control, uh, meaning that uh, it is the integration of... Uh, sensory input and uh, a motor output. And this occurs at different levels, of course. So the sensory input uh, is directly integrated with motor commands in the natural condition at the spinal cord because uh, uh, sensory fibers 
provides input to neural cells in the spinal cord directly then connected to muscles and also at the supraspinal level of course because that sensory input in addition to directly projecting to neurons in the spinal cord uh, also goes up uh, upstream uh, and is integrated uh, at the supraspinal level and uh, the intimate relation between uh, sensory input uh, and motor commands provides uh, uh, the smooth, uh, accurate, uh, and uh, complex movements that we are used to see in, um, in uh, intact and healthy uh, bodies. Uh, we know that uh, it, uh, in cases in which the motor output is perfectly intact, uh, but the sensory input is missing, then uh, movements uh, are very complex to produce. And we know this from pathological conditions that... Uh, uh, that block uh, only the sensory part. So the motor part is perfectly intact, uh, but the sensory part is missing. And we know in these pathological cases uh, that uh, making movements, despite the motor part being completely intact and healthy, making movement before, be, uh, uh, be without the sensory part is, uh, is extremely complex. Sometimes it's not even possible. And, uh, and we know that also when we have, uh, uh, when we experience some local anesthetics that uh, remove sensation, uh, this is a typical case when you go to the dentist and uh, you can see how complex are the movements uh, uh, to be performed because uh, you lose uh, the, uh, a number of sensation, including proprioception, where proprioception is the sense of uh, uh, body parts positioning. So we know where our body parts are, even if we close our eyes, that's proprioception. Without that sense, it will be very difficult to move. To what extent can that, that sense of proprioception be replaced by visual feedback? So there's certain things I can think of that I do with my hand that, well, I can, I can kind of see what it's doing. For example, if I'm waving at someone, I know that I've reached the, you know, the end of the clockwise movements of the wave. And so I can move counterclockwise. Uh, are there actions where it's, you know, less important versus more important to have that physical uh, proprioceptive feedback? Yeah, you're right. Uh, proprioceptive feedback, when it's missing, uh, it's um, uh, compensated by vision. Indeed, uh, in prosthetic users, uh, uh, who lacks uh, completely uh, proprioception of the hand uh, or the arm. Uh, we, if you observe them uh, closely, whatever is their action, they really fix uh, very closely their prosthesis uh, in any kind uh, in any kind of action, and uh, and in this way they close uh, they close the loop. Otherwise, they will not be able to 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 to, to produce any any function. Uh, of course, uh, in uh, relatively simple uh, movements, uh, uh, like uh, grasping uh, in, in, uh, in a rough way, then uh, uh, substituting proprioception with uh, visual feedback uh, uh, allows to reach the goal. Uh, so if we want to grasp a cup, this is not a particularly uh, sophisticated movement. But if you think at manipulation, if you think at your hands, uh, your hands are able of... Uh, uh, very complex manipulation of objects where we manipulation uh, implies a dynamic change in the interaction forces with objects of many uh, different shapes and textures and ex weights uh, exactly exactly imagine uh, imagine when you rotate a pen uh, 
uh, around your fingers. Uh, these are very difficult tasks to do that um, uh, even uh, with a visual fib it would be very difficult to reproduce uh, uh, without a proper uh, uh, proprioceptive uh, feedback. And indeed, these are uh, actions and functions that are impossible with, uh, with robotic, uh, robotic limbs. Getting a little bit into uh, more into the weeds of the control and, and your work, um, you mentioned that in the case of a hand amputation, uh, there are some residual nerves and muscles that you can take signal from. Uh, I know that many of the muscles that are used to control the hand are actually in the upper arm. So if we think about, say, a, a below elbow amputation, uh, am I losing um, any or all of the muscles or none of them? Um, and uh, in general, what does the residual limb look like? What's available to me post-amputation? Yeah, so you're right. Uh, the, um, for amputation below the elbow, which are the uh, so-called transradial amputations, uh, um, there are, uh, uh, well, depending, of course, on the level of the amputation, but normally there is, ass the, there is access to the forearm muscles, that are responsible for many functions on the end, for example, extension of the fingers, flexion of the fingers, and so on. And therefore, uh, transradial amputees uh, can use prosthetics uh, that are controlled by electrical signals that are directly recorded from these uh, Riemann muscles above the amputation. And uh, this is uh, sufficient, at least, as I said before, to control... Uh, a few uh, a few degrees of freedom uh, the higher is the amputation level uh, however uh, the the lower is the number of muscles that is available and uh, also the muscles available are not anymore directly related to the missing function right so if the amputation for example is above the elbow then uh, you don't have uh, any more muscle that is directly involved in the control uh, of the end uh, however, you still have the nerves. Uh, the nerves uh, are, still, uh, are still available. Uh, they are cut at the stump, uh, but they are available. And so there are two main approaches uh, for, for which we can talk more in detail, but just to give a general overview, there are two main approaches at that, uh, at that point. One is to insert electrodes in nerves. And uh, in that way, uh, you can decode the activity of, in principle, any any nerve uh, that, uh, that was controlling the missing, uh, the missing limb. The other possibility is to surgically transfer the, uh, the nerves from the stump to muscles that are above the amputation, and then use electrodes on muscles that are basically recording the amplified nerve activity. So in both cases, uh, the search is for the nerve activity that was previously underlined the control of the missing limb. And as I say, this can be done with two main current approaches, direct nerve interfacing or indirect nerve interfacing by reinnervating uh, a muscle above the amputation with the target nerve and then recording the electrical activity determined by the new reinnervation from the muscle. That is very interesting. That, that second approach, uh, it kind of calls out another function of muscles. You, you tend to think of muscles as just actuators, but in the targeted muscle reinnervation approach, 
they're also amplifiers, as you're saying. You, you really uh, can use them to read signal as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. They are basically biological amplifiers. Which approach is your favorite, or which have you uh, started to lean to more throughout your work? Uh, so we have mainly worked on the nerve transfers, and I can tell a bit more about that. Uh, uh, however, I have uh, I have a direct and indirect experience uh, also with nerve interfacing. The problem of nerve interfacing is that if interfacing that we currently have is that um, uh, nerves are uh, uh, of course uh, small and delicate structures, and so the electrodes uh, for interfacing nerves uh, uh, are uh, more complex than electrodes to record from muscles. And also, as we said, the muscle uh, amplified the nerve activity. So if we, on the contrary, record directly from the nerve, we usually have signals uh, that have a poorer quality than the uh, signals amplified by the muscles. So uh, this is the reason why uh, not only we work mainly on nerve transfer, but also clinically, uh, now the nerve transfer solution uh, is the is is the only uh, viable from the clinical point of view, not from the not from the research point of view. And so, clinically, the uh, the, the the nerve transfer is now a, a routine surgery to improve prosthetic control. So it's not uh, it's not anymore just a, a frontier research technique. So the the nerve transfer is. Um, is an interesting technique because uh, in principle it, will, it would allow to record uh, from um, uh, all the nerves uh, that were previously innervating the, the missing limb and to record this activity uh, amplified so with better quality uh, than uh, uh, we could by directly interfacing the nerves because when the nerve uh, connects to the muscle the muscle produces electrical activity driven by the nerve electrical activity, and the muscle electrical activity is much larger. Not only, but uh, we can insert, uh, we can implant electrodes in muscles, or we can put electrodes above the skin over muscles, uh, technologically in a quite simple way, because muscles are, are, are large, uh, they don't get damaged uh, easily. And so they can accommodate uh, uh, larger electrodes, which are uh, more robust uh, also over time. What, what does the mapping look like between the residual nerves and uh, the, 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 the targeted muscles that you reinnervate, and also between those muscles and the degrees of freedom in the missing limb? Yeah, so the... The, the key aspect of the, map, the, of the mapping is dictated uh, by, the, by the nerve. So the, the nerve brings the same uh, uh, or a very similar neural code as uh, if that information would go to the missing limb. So um, uh, the muscles in this respect uh, are just acting as, as we say, as amplifiers or as uh, biological screens, we can also say. Uh, for which we can read that information. So to establish the mapping, we need to understand uh, the, uh, the neural activity uh, brought by the different nerves. So this can be done in various ways. Well, surgically, there is uh, a reinnervation uh, matrix for which uh, the surgeon uh, decides uh, 
for each nerve uh, or uh, uh, portion of the nerve, which is the target muscle. And so when reading from that muscle, we know that we are reading for a specific nerve. Uh, but the mapping can also be done uh, uh, with uh, uh, additional uh, post-processing machine learning or artificial intelligence, meaning that uh, we can also have uh, a reinnervation uh, of a number of muscles and then later on uh, associate uh, the extracted information to specific functions uh, through a, a, a co-learning, meaning that uh, we train the, the user and at the same time we train the algorithms in order to have the optimal mapping. Is there typically a, or it sounds like there is not typically a one-to-one -one mapping between uh, the muscle and the particular degree of freedom in the muscle reinnervation approach? Is that accurate? So, well, uh, in the classic uh, uh, TMR, targeted muscle innervation, uh, as uh, proposed originally by Todd Kaiken in Chicago and still been uh, the state of the art in clinics, uh, what is done uh, is to try to uh, indeed uh, uh, associate uh, each degree of freedom to, uh, to two uh, uh, commands, the neural commands. Uh, and the two narrow commands because a degree of freedom, for example, like uh, opening and closing of the end right, it's bi-directional implies, implies two directions, exactly. So normally, uh, the, in the classic TMR, the surgeon uh, tries to find uh, two sides of reinnervation for each degree of freedom. And uh, for uh, TMR applied to uh, transhumeral amputees, uh, so above the elbow, uh, we try to reach uh, up to three degree of freedom, which is uh, six sites, and the control is direct. So every signal is associated to half of a degree of freedom. This is the classic approach. Now there are uh, a few, uh, a few uh, research pathways that try to go beyond this approach, uh, and including our own, uh, our own take on this, that... Uh, I can uh, explain in more detail if, if for interest later. Yeah, yes, please do. Please uh, let's let's dive into it. So, so three out of twenty-five. First of all, it doesn't sound like uh, too many. It sounds like there's a long way to go. Um, and also, I imagine those three aren't perfect, right? Yeah, yeah, no, indeed, indeed. So the the clinical outcome uh, is still uh, is still very. Uh, let's say can be improved substantially and. Uh, Whoever uh, has seen, as I have done, um, together with my uh, uh, doctor colleagues, uh, patients after a prosthetic fitting uh, uh, with a state-of-the-art uh, uh, clinical possibilities. So whoever has seen patients uh, uh, performing tasks uh, can uh, certainly testify that the, reco that the recovery of function is... Uh, is very far from optimal. Um, there are uh, uh, indeed approaches that try to improve this situation. Uh, our own take on that uh, is, um, and this is uh, uh, actually very recent, uh, very recent research, uh, far from the full clinical translation, but uh, potentially in the future uh, uh, impactful in the field, uh, is to uh, uh, Reinnervate uh, a, a muscle uh, 
in a sort of a hyper-innervation state, meaning uh, uh, sending as many nerves as possible in the same muscle, which is the contrary of what currently is done. Currently, TMR attempts uh, to separate uh, the reinnervation sites as much as possible. Our, uh, our uh, approach uh, is to have uh, an hyper-innervation of a muscle with uh, uh, multiple nerves, and then mathematically uh, uh, separate the different neural information. So instead of surgically separate uh, the neural signals and trying to create as many spatially separated control signals, we are trying to uh, decode from the same spatial location and uh, with uh, reverse engineering, we are trying to extract uh, as many independent uh, neural control signals as possible. And this can be done indeed. And uh, it is done uh, mainly uh, by uh, blind uh, source separation approaches uh, that uh, uh, given a mixture of uh, uh, independent uh, neural activity can, uh, uh, can separate that. So with, with these approaches, uh, in, again, in theory, uh, one would be able to even decode uh, individual nerve fibers. So not only neural commands, but individual nerve fibers, uh, hundreds of individual nerve fibers, and then uh, cluster the uh, fibers uh, in, uh, in different uh, subsets associated to different commands and to different degrees of freedom. When you first take this um, this bundle of nerves and connect it all to one muscle, uh, do you have any sense or expectation of what the degrees of freedom controlled by those nerves are? Or is it sort of uh, the kind of problem where you don't know that a priori and you have to then figure it out uh, afterwards? Yeah, so in, 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 in our approach, we... Uh, we figure it out afterwards and it would not be possible to know a priori, meaning that uh, we, we don't know exactly, for example, uh, uh, which uh, muscle parts are innervated by one bundle of the nerve with respect to the other, right? Because the, the reinnervation uh, for us uh, is, 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 is almost random. We send uh, uh, a number of nerves uh, in the same uh, muscle and then reinnervation takes place and uh, we have no a priori information of um, uh, which uh, nerve bundle innervates uh, a specific muscle part. So what we do is, uh, is a two-step blind process. The first blind process uh, that has uh, very elegant mathematical solutions is to take all this mixture of uh, signals and uh, separate them into individual nerve fibers so you, you, you may consider, for example, that we can decode uh, hundreds of these nerve fibers. And then the second step is the mapping step. And also that step uh, implies uh, no a priori information, uh, but of course implies that we can have uh, some training with the user. So we can ask the user to perform uh, or to attempt to perform uh, a number of different tasks. We can read the neural activity and then we can reconstruct the grouping of the, of the neural activity um, according to the different tasks. And the different tasks will also uh, have something in common, meaning that uh, uh, some tasks will have uh, a number of these subsets 
of uh, nerve fibers in common uh, and then some not in common. Uh, so, so what we have to rebuild is a sort of an architecture of how the neural activity would be naturally distributed to perform uh, a repertoire of tasks. And if we are able to do that, then we can ultimately go back to the individual degrees of freedom. Wow. This sounds like a profoundly complex algorithm that you'd have to use for this blind source separation. I mean, the analogy that I have in my head is listening to, you know, 10 to 20 people uh, simultaneously speaking on one microphone and then outputting their individual uh, speech. Uh, is that, is that, you know, a fair, a fair analogy? Yeah, that's a perfect analogy, actually, because um, that's um, uh, also from the signal processing point of view, the two problems are, uh, are very similar and they've been addressed, of course, in, in, in completely different fields. So the, the problem that you refer to is, uh, is uh, normally called uh, in the signal processing literature, uh, the co cocktail party problem. Right, so right. When you, have, uh, you have many, many people talking, uh, talking together and you record the uh, audio signal, you separate them. And uh, this is a problem that was addressed uh, long ago. And uh, what we did was to uh, re-elaborate those techniques uh, when we have uh, neural activity to be separated. And we adapted the algorithms uh, to the specific characteristic of neural activity. One uh, very nice characteristic of neural activity is that if you think at a single neural cell, the neural cell will um, discharge action potentials and so the actual source is what we call a temporally sparse source, meaning that it is very often zero when there is no discharge of the action potential, and occasionally it is different from zero when there is the discharge of the action potential. Uh -huh. It kind this of fires is, uh, intermittently. Exactly. This is uh, a very strong prior when developing algorithms specifically suited to separating neural sources because it's a, it's a property shared by all excitable cells. And so we can confidently put that constraint, which of course uh, is not a constraint that you can use for audio signals, but uh, in the case of neural signal, we can put that constraint and this constraint make the decoding algorithm possible, even in situations uh, that seems uh, uh, almost impossible mathematically. So situation where you have uh, thousands of sources to separate. Yeah. So if you go back to the analogy of the cocktail party, uh, it's like assuming that only two or three people would ever be speaking at the same time, uh, even though you're in a room of a hundred of them. Uh, yes. Or that um, uh, you may, or another analogy, uh, which is uh, the, other, uh, the other side of that, is that you still have thousands of people, but each speaks for a very short time interval uh, repetitively over time. Um, so that, that is closer, actually, Understood. to, yeah, that is closer to, to, the, to the neural situation. So just, just to um, go back a step here, um, why is it that you would need to connect many nerves to one muscle? I mean, why not, you know, have many muscles and have a one-to-one -one connection between every nerve that you find and, and uh, a singular muscle? Is that just, is that very hard to do surgically? Is that the main reason? 
Uh, well, that that is one of the reasons. Not uh, it is not very hard to do, but uh, it's. Um, uh, it, I mean, if you think of that, you you would have uh, uh, a number of muscles spread around the normally the chest or the back of patients, and then uh, when you fit a prosthesis, you have to have electrodes all over the the, the chest and the back, and this is not mm-hmm. uh, ideal. It's um, it's. Uh, uh, inconvenient uh, when using the prosthesis, uh, and also very complex uh, to find the best prosthetic fitting uh, after the operation, meaning the best position of the electrodes. What we have in mind uh, is a sort of a of a bioconnector. So we want to create a, a compact connector with the external world, and uh, if we can do it uh, in a very small space. So if you think at uh, a small muscle that is bombarded by all these nerve fibers, then we can implant, and that's the vision, implant electrodes in that muscle, and we get all the information that uh, we need. So you would have one connector uh, between the body and uh, the external world, uh, compact, that doesn't require uh, basically any, any fitting. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're going to introduce complexity... Uh, for a similar outcome, you're going to want to do it on the uh, software side, which really uh, is on the back end, uh, is not seen or felt by the patient in any exactly. way than on the, the biological hardware side or physical or, or, or uh, electrical yeah. hardware side. Yeah, exactly. So that's, uh, uh, that's, th- that's the concept. And, uh, and actually, in addition, uh, because you mentioned, uh, uh, we mentioned together the, the sensory part. In addition, uh, uh, because the nerves are bidirectional, we also have a sensory part. Then you can think uh, even more uh, in, the, in the distant future that uh, you can also try to have uh, a connector that allows you to put sensory feedback uh, through the sensory fibers in the nerve bundle and uh, still within the same compact uh, compact structure and uh, we are also working on that uh, concept so our concept is to have uh, a, a small uh, a small uh, uh, size uh, neural uh, connector that is bidirectional uh, for motor and uh, sensor information and is the idea that you could somehow electrically stimulate that uh, re-innervated muscle and you know, in a spatially distributed way to target different nerves that it's connected to, or is there a, a different uh, that's way? It, it, that's one possibility. Another possibility that, uh, and this is uh, something that we just, uh, uh, with the lead of the Medical University of Vienna, we had just tested in animals. Uh, it's not published yet, but the other possibility is uh, to take a piece of um, uh, skin from uh, another part of the body. Uh, cut the natural innervation of the sk- of that skin completely, and then put on top of uh, the reinnervated muscle, and having the motor fibers reinnervating the muscle and the nerve fiber reinnervating this uh, uh, skin graft, and then uh, elicit sensation through either mechanical or electrical uh, stimulation of that skin graft. Uh, but even mechanically, wow. so no, not electrically, mechanically at that point will become particularly important because uh, we talk about pro- proprioception uh, at the beginning, and proprioception uh, is encoded in various ways. Uh, but one of these ways is also the skin stretch. Uh, 
for example, uh, you know the position of your uh, mouth, you know if you're smiling, uh, because of skin stretch, right? There are not, uh, there are not joints uh, that are explaining the, the variety of facial expressions. Right. So our idea, our idea is the same for the skin graft. So let's say that we can reinnervate the skin graft with the sensory fibers uh, that normally would go from the missing limb to the central nervous system. And then let's try to mechanically perturb the skin graft to try to mimic uh, some proprioceptive information. So this is, uh, of course, uh, a bit of a far-fetched view. But as I said, uh, we just uh, finalized, and uh, it's not published yet, but it's completed, uh, the proof of concept in animals that uh, with a skin graft uh, put on the top uh, of a muscle, we can have both uh, motor and sensory reinnervation uh, with a very large number of uh, reinnervated sensory fibers in addition to the motor fiber that we knew already would reinnervate. Wow, wow, that is so innovative. It feels like you're you're uh, re-engineering the human at this point. Um, so so for example, you could take like a piece of of, of skin um, that you might be able to preserve at the time of a hand amputation. And you would keep it connected to all of the the cutaneous uh, nerve fibers, and then you'd put like some sort of uh, uh, you know actuator on top of it to and a sensor where the finger used to be, so that you could sense uh, some pressure there, and then also uh, put pressure on the the skin. Is that the, the idea? Yeah, in principle. Yeah, in principle, exactly. Yes, exactly. You you could see that wow. scenario. And uh, I think that the main concept is uh, to use as much as possible uh, the uh, biological parts. So uh, instead of trying to uh, find a very complex code to, to be provided directly to nerves, we can use the natural sensors, for example, as you say, cutaneous sensor embedded in the skin, try to have a natural reinnervation, well, artificial because we do a nerve transfer, but uh, somehow naturally uh, uh, reconnecting nerves with uh, biological sensors. And then uh, at that point, uh, we have this uh, sort of a uh, maximum level of uh, usage of the biologically available structures. And then we have the technology uh, leveraging on top of that. For example, as you say, an actuator or a, or a complex system uh, plus uh, machine learning and uh, retraining of the user and so on to re-educate the user to interpret those sensations. Uh, but the main concept is to use as much as possible what is biologically available because uh, it's very difficult to reproduce the biology. <laughs> yes, yes, it's it's very interesting how much this field seeks to leverage what's already there in these very creative ways. Uh, I so, think that has been a trend. Uh, I mean, sorry to tell you, it's a, it has been a trend, uh, an important trend uh, since, uh, especially developing uh, since uh, TMR, since uh, um, uh, targeted muscle innovation, the idea to use as much as possible what is available rather than uh, having the ambitions, uh, ambition to uh, interact directly with neural structures and trying to encode uh, very complex information directly. 
So, so let me let me take you back to this blind source separation um, algorithm. Um, I had kind of a, a question that really gets at the the difference between many of these sort of classical algorithms and the more modern deep learning approaches. Um, why use a classical algorithm? I mean, would it would it be possible to map the signals coming off of the muscle directly to degrees of freedom? using, you know, a, a complex, uh, learning architecture. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it would, um, uh, and that, that would be a direct mapping. So the, the key aspect there uh, is to have a lot of data, of course. And, uh, and also the key aspect is, uh, the, the risk of overfitting. And so being not robust across, uh, across conditions, but uh, we we also are working extensively on um, on uh, deep neural networks for uh, for a direct uh, mapping. Uh, even in that way, uh, I believe that uh, having uh, intermediate layers of uh, of the networks that uh, represent the physiological activity, and we can do that again, as I said, with constraints. Uh, is uh, useful uh, in order to render the solution uh, uh, more robust because the neural activity is uh, somehow universal across subjects. Uh, for example, if we record uh, muscle uh, electrical signals, while um, the activity, uh, such as due to the electric potential of the muscle fibers that we separate from the neural one, is the one that varies across the individuals. And so a, a neural network that would do a mapping, ideally, would have uh, layers that uh, goes to the neural information. And then after that, uh, the mapping is almost universal. And uh, if we can drive this kind of uh, coding of the information inside the network, then we have uh, much more general and robust uh, mapping. Interesting. So, so you're describing a deep learning based approach, but that is grounded in our knowledge of the physiology. So you would still, it, it would exactly know right. that there's these multiple steps. Okay. Yeah, exactly and, right. And I, I, I think that is, uh, that is still important. So just to, just to make an example, if you are in, in the laboratory, you record the kinematics of the end, even uh, all the 20 plus degrees of freedom we discussed. And at the same time, you record the muscle signals from the forearm and you do that uh, uh, for uh, several hours, you certainly have enough data uh, for the network to be able to find the mapping. Uh, the problem is that uh, if the subject stand up uh, and uh, put the, the arm uh, along the body instead of uh, in front of him or her, then the network uh, will not uh, be able anymore to make the mapping and everything will crash. Uh, and this is because, of course, uh, you have uh, so many data that you have uh, overfit for that specific right. uh, condition. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it's, it's very interesting to think about how uh, you can really leverage the advantages of both physics, or in this case, physiological-based models, and these sort of black box algorithms, which might perform very well given a specific training set, but could just fail... Uh, really uh, catastrophically fail um, if there is some change to the system and maybe you can compensate for those failures with your knowledge of how the system works. That's kind of yeah, what I'm exactly. hearing Exactly. Exactly. And especially for medical devices, it's always important uh, to have uh, 
not a fully black box, but at least a semi-transparent box uh, for many reasons, uh, including safety. And, uh, and, uh, and also, uh, if you have access to physiological information in addition to have uh, the mapping for uh, performing the function, then you can also monitor the situation of patients, uh, understanding uh, uh, a number of uh, uh, clinical uh, uh, signs or markers from the patient. So uh, there are always those uh, uh, byproducts of passing through physiology anyway. So what is the status of uh, your, your approach today of, the, of inferring the neural signals? Uh, how many degrees of freedom are you able to differentiate? And have you been able to uh, you know, connect up to a robot and see uh, how well you can control it? Well, what, what I have described, especially the hyper-innervation and uh, the, the sensory motor uh, integration is, uh, is, quite, uh, uh, is quite at the frontier of what we are doing. Uh, this is uh, a very large uh, European initiative with uh, uh, other laboratories uh, specialized in, uh, in robotics, in surgery. And, uh, and what I described is uh, really very, very recent results uh, and... Uh, with a lot, uh, with a lot to do, what we are uh, uh, certainly able to do, at least in uh, in, in the laboratory, is uh, now to decode uh, a relatively large number of degrees of freedom, uh, uh, also with direct control of a robotic hand. So at least up to uh, controlling individual fingers, uh, which implies that you can perform uh, uh, complex hand postures uh, by uh, by, by interfacing. Uh, this is in the laboratory and this is uh, in, uh, in, in specific conditions and so on, so it's, uh, it's, it's uh, far from the, from the translation. Uh, but the vision uh, of, uh, that I was explaining of this bioconnector, uh, we are working uh, step by step. So we have uh, uh, finalized the animal uh, proof of concept, uh, both for the motor and the sensory part, we are now very recently um, starting uh, the human proof of concept, which implies uh, this uh, hyper-innervation that normally is not done clinically. So also from the ethical point of view, it, there are some obstacles indeed, but we are doing that now. Uh, and all the steps so far seems to work, so it seems to make sense. So uh, in theory, from what we are seeing and from the current result that we have, we should be able uh, within the next few years to... Uh, to increase uh, substantially the number of degrees of freedom that can be controlled. Uh, and maybe having this uh, in uh, some limited uh, clinical trials in, uh, in patients. But uh, as I said, uh, these approaches uh, are, uh, are, uh, are really uh, new and uh, somehow also very high-risk approaches. There is always something that uh, may go wrong or something that we may not have thought at. At the moment, everything is... Uh, is working as we as we planned it, and the concept seems to seems to stand. So, so this uh, bioconnector that you're describing, that you're taking through animal testing and um, soon taking through human testing, uh, it includes the the blind source separation algorithm and the cutaneous component as well. Or uh, yeah, so so the final uh, yes, so the, um, the 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 final version is. Uh, uh, would be um, 
hyper innervation of a small muscle. There can also be a muscle uh, transplanted from another part of the body, by the way. It can be a muscle uh, uh, just put there for interfacing. Um, and uh, as I said, uh, uh, skin graft, uh, sensory and motor innervation, and then we have uh, already developed uh, uh, microelectrodes that can be implanted in muscle. They can record uh, signals uh, from uh, tens to hundreds of locations. This is already developed and tested in our labs. Uh, so these are uh, electrodes that are uh, uh, 40, 50 micron in size, uh, very small individually. And uh, we make uh, grids or arrays of them. We implant them into muscles. And, uh, and then we record in a very precise way the muscle activity generated by the, by the re-innervated uh, uh, re sites. And uh, we do this uh, for the motor part uh, already in, uh, in patients uh, in preliminary laboratory uh, conditions. Wow. So also in, uh, in real-time applications. Yes, we can do all, all this in real time. So we can um, decode uh, the, this blind separation that I was mentioning. Now we can do it in real time. Uh, actually, uh, we do that uh, in real time mainly with uh, deep neural networks that are not doing the full mapping, but they are doing the, the decoding in neural information. So at the moment, we have uh, two steps. We have uh, a network for decoding and a network for mapping. Uh, which is basically in the line of what we discussed before of having a single network that uh, in, intermediately as a physiological representation. And the signals that you're attaining for the individual uh, neural uh, fiber bundles, are you connecting those up to any actuators uh, in, those, in those human uh, studies? Yes. Yeah, so at the moment, uh, yes. At the moment, uh, we have uh, uh, we have preliminary tests uh, with uh, real uh, uh, prosthesis. We have uh, we are particularly interested in uh, uh, the prosthetic technology of the laboratory of uh, Professor Bicchi in Italy because he is part of this large project and is um, developing soft robotic hands, meaning robotic hands that are compliant. If they touch an object, they adapt to the object. And uh, we are uh, extensively working together with Professor Bick in interfacing this type of end. So that's also another innovation of, uh, of this uh, large European initiative, where also the robotic part is uh, closer uh, to reality. So if you look at uh, uh, classic um, prosthesis, these are hard part. Uh, they are hard uh, robotic. Uh, while um, uh, Professor Bicchi, since several years, uh, had the idea of developing um, soft joints. So if uh, the prosthetic hand uh, is wrapped around an object, it takes the shape of the object, a bit like our natural hands, and uh, also interacting with others. For example, if it shakes uh, your hand, it will adapt to your, uh, to your hand. Um, so these are uh, also very interesting, very novel uh, prosthetics and uh, we have um, uh, interfaced uh, our uh, our decoding method with this prosthetic already in uh, in the labs that's that's amazing dario it, it's it's amazing at once to think about uh, how much complexity is going into this you know bilateral communication system that is in part leveraging biology in part leveraging your novel algorithms uh, and also 
really comparatively what um, small of a subset of the functions of the human hand uh, it covers, right? Because I'm, I'm just thinking, I mean, besides cutaneous feedback, there's also temperature, there's also strain, exactly. there's also, uh, yeah. there's, there's many other different things. Yeah, so that's, that's it's, right. That's right. <laughs> it's very humbling. <laughs> and it sounds like you're yeah. working with a, a whole group of, of labs on this. Yes, uh, we are uh, we are lucky in this because uh, we obtain uh, a relatively large financing from the European Union, and uh, and we have a very nice group of laboratories. And as you say, it's a very interdisciplinary research. So uh, we have robotics, we have surgery, we have uh, rehabilitation uh, uh, doctors, we have interfacing, we have signal processing, machine learning, artificial intelligence, biology. Uh, neurology, uh, neurosciences. I could continue for long. So, so it's a really a, a, an area where uh, within a, a problem that uh, that may seem narrow uh, at uh, when when thinking at it uh, uh, lightly, then uh, you have an extremely complex engineering uh, and medical uh, uh, challenge. Dario, thank you so much for the for the conversation. Um, really learned a lot. I'm sure that we touched on less than one percent of uh, you know your massive contribution of work to this uh, area of research. Um, but I, I certainly learned a lot, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much, Roman. It has been a pleasure.